take a deep breath, leave behind any of a stressful thought or a bottleneck or a challenge that you were facing yesterday and focus on one thing that you'd like to accomplish today and do it. That would be my my little thought to start the day. Welcome to the Getting Simple Podcast. Hi, everyone. This is your host, uh, Nono Martinez Alonso, and this is the Getting Simple Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to introduce you to Saba Gole. Hi, Saba. Hi, how are you, Nono? Saba is a chief creative officer of Nuvu, which is an um, award-winning innovation school based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, even though it's now expanding around different parts of the world, including California. I think in, there are some places in Europe, but you, you can talk about that more uh, later. Saba also, um, so she has a background in architecture and urban design. She studied architecture in California Polytechnic uh, State University, and she studied an S-Marks degree in urban design at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, before uh, co-founding uh, Nuvu with Said. Said Arida and David Wang were the two other co-founders. Okay. Before, um, she also co-founded uh, Plaque K. She was a strategist and designer. Um, she also worked at Perkins and Will uh, as an urban designer, um, I believe doing some projects on the West Coast uh, involving some famous buildings, architecture, and some other residential commissions. She also worked at uh, Huga Coop Himmelblau. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And then uh, another interesting part to me is that she worked on interactive art installations that uh, mainly were for uh, Burning Man, but then they kind of spin off to other works. So uh, what else can you tell us about yourself? I'd like to hear a bit of what your path was to actually get to where you're today. Yeah, thank you, Nono. Well, I can say my path has always been through art and design. I think ever since I was very, very little, you know, as quickly as I could hold a pencil, I immersed myself in paintings and drawings and sketching and always was obsessed with having projects to work on. And I would spend my entire summers, even as a second grader, figuring out all the little micro projects that I could design for myself. And they kind of grew into this fascination and interest around how creative art and design could work its way into anything that I was doing. So that really became kind of a place where I could explore, tap into who I was. It seemed limitless and boundless. And that feeling of complete freedom really kept me interested in the world around me. So I think that pursuit of Art and design really stemmed from my early childhood and always imagining interesting places in the world. I, I used to get a lot of people around me, my family members and my friends would always complain that I would always be daydreaming. 
Saba, you're always so lost. And I was actually not lost. I would, I, it's probably because I was thinking about something in my head, imagining myself in some magical place. And that really started to translate into ideas that I would have about how a space might be um, or, or how I could redesign my room so that it would become a completely different type of experience for anyone that was walking into it. And so I, I really love that imaginative side. And I think it's kind of persisted in my way in terms of how I think about the world around me and any sort of projects that I now work on as as a grown-up, if I can call myself that now. So you mentioned that this happened to you when you were a second grader and you kind of kept with it throughout your career. What do you think was the spark that made you be that way? That's a good question. Um, you know, I would say that some of it maybe was just internal to who I am. And, you know, I spent a lot of time when I was younger traveling between India, where where's my family is from, and my mom's family and my dad's family were from very small towns. You can think of them as villages. And I think, you know, I used to spend quite a bit of time there. Um, and I actually lived there for about a year and a half, two years when I was young, very young. And I used to spend my summers there. And moving between that type of environment and then coming back to California, I just found those experiences to be so vastly different. And I definitely say that being around very different types of cultural experiences um, really shaped and, again, made me more aware of how, um, you know, the things that people find meaningful and how space and experience can really impact life. Um, so I think that I just became more attuned and aware of those differences in a way that really capture, captured my attention. And I wanted to kind of redesign those types of experiences in my own way. So I, I would say it's a combination probably of being in such vivid um, environments that I just kind of looked at both of them and would compare and contrast and then really find it to be very curious that I could exist in both places and my family could exist in both places and there was something very seamless about it. But at the same time, those experiences were very different. So there was a lot that I think as a child, I was probably just trying to make sense of the world around me through art and design. So when was that? When, how old were you on those two years that you lived in India? Very young, um, probably from age three to age five and a half, six. And I also did some of my early schooling in India and, uh, you know, spent another, probably another almost year um, when I was nine years old back in India. So, it, it, you know, and then spending three months of every year when we were traveling back from the U.S. Um, during our summer months here. So it ended up being a, a pretty significant amount of time over over my early childhood. And what are the main things that you found when you, because I mean, as a child, like you just move back and forth and you would maybe miss things in one place or the other. What, what were the things that you enjoyed more or that you were looking forward to when you, you know, before going to the US or going to India? Yeah, I can tell you that I just found one of the starkest differences was to me sound. And being in India, you're just submerged from the sound of cars and people moving around or stories being told in in the homes. And it's very interconnected. And 
growing up, you know, or spending a significant amount of time in India, we had extended families all living together um, in one house. So, so it's almost like you don't just have parents, you have extended family who become parents to you and grandparents who are like parents and cousins that are like brothers and sisters. And that was so different to me coming, you know, being at home and having at times, sometimes 20 people in the house. Um, and it was really, f that part of it for me was so much fun. And, and just, you would hear this, the sounds of um, kind of the vegetable truck that would be coming down the street and someone's trying to sell, sell vegetables and is sending out, you know, little alarms to everyone in the neighborhood that they're coming by. And you would hear the, you know, the rickshaw horns. Um, and so those sounds became very comforting. And when I came back to the U.S., even if it was after spending three months and my summers in India, one of the, I would say it felt very strange was how quiet I found the U.S. to be. And being in, you know, where we lived in California in this, you know, suburban town um, in Orange County, that at night when I used to go to sleep, it was almost, you know, as a little child, a bit frightening because I thought, I don't really know who my neighbors are. And we don't really know who lives in every single house around our complex. And these things that were just part of life in India. So I think that was, for me, a big shift going from one place to the other. And it's interesting because as I grew up, you begin to sometimes appreciate more of the quietness and maybe appreciate also some independence and time that you get alone, which I didn't get so much when I was in India because everyone is living together and it's very interconnected within the family. Um, and, you know, everyone eats together. And, and so those are, you know, little subtle differences. But I would say that, you know, that sound really was one thing that I couldn't, it, it just felt kind of eerie out here. And, you know, the other kind of, I'd say, big difference, which I mentioned was this sense of connection that you felt with people around you, family members, the people who lived on your street um, in India, where it just felt like an extension of the home. And when I was in California, it was very much little families within our complex living and having their own lives. But and we'd, we'd talk to each other once in a while and understood, oh, hey, how are your, you know, how's your son and daughter doing? Or, and those types of conversations. But it felt very different than having this sense of extended family that was your neighbor. And so those relationships were very different. And I found myself back in California, sometimes peeping out of the window of my bedroom and peeking over to the backyard of my neighbor just to look in. Um, just to see, you know, what kind of life do they have? What were their kids doing? And I still remember the two families that lived on both sides of our of our townhome, and they had such very different lives. Um, you know, one of the family to the right was a, a Mexican family that used to have all sorts of huge gatherings in their and in in the backyard, um, an extended family, which actually reminded me a lot of home and being back in India. And there was another family to the left of our town home, which was just sort of a, a single insular family with four people, similar to my family. Um, and they kind of kept to themselves and didn't have as many kind of big 
boisterous family gatherings. So it was just really interesting to see even those differences within our little um, complex in California. Yeah, I would say Spain is sounds a bit more like India. I don't think it's that noisy, but at least the the fact, you know, the fact that you get to know your neighbors or like do more things with them. I don't know. Maybe this just happened because where I grew up, we had the beach really close. And then it's a place where you like a common space that, you know, the people who live next to you. And then at some point, the families get to know to each other. And then you, you I don't know, families see grow the kids of the other family. And then there's some bonding there. And now that you said it the other day, um, uh, a friend actually, Saurabh, uh, mentioned we were walking around Cambridge and he mentioned like oh I can't believe like I'm I'm super quiet like I, I'm I just came back from India and there are all these beeping cars and like super <laughs> in some ways stressful but I guess like when you get used to it you you even miss it because it's like I mean it's like what's what's going on what's wrong here you mentioned before that this so the the kind of uh, your interest in art and design um, made you or helped you tap into who you are. So how do you think that helped you out and why do you think that is? Or Yeah, I think it definitely helped me because I would say from a very young age, I was, uh, you know, I could be described more as a quiet introvert and I thought a lot about things around me. And so having that medium through art and design, it allowed me a space for expressing what I was thinking in a, in a safe way, in a safe environment where it didn't necessarily have to be judged or graded um, or honestly even be seen by anybody. I could just create these things for myself. And, you know, of course, my parents would peek in. So it was never quite that private, but it, it gave me that space to feel that I could actually be sharing deeper thoughts and deeper ideas that I might have. Um, and, and, and part of it was just play and experimenting and having fun um, in a boundless way that wasn't trying to achieve a certain goal. And I think that was very helpful for, for me personally and my personality at that age and at times finding it difficult to share what I was thinking and to be able to do that consistently. And, and I found that over time, I was able to, you know, I think having that space made it, it much more comfortable for me to actually then share my thoughts more vocally about certain things. Um, so I felt like I grew through that process of actually being able to have that medium available to me, and then, you know, actually put out my work into the world where others could actually experience it. So it was sort of this gradual series of steps that started when I was very young um, to actually then creating art that I started to install, you know, later on in high school um, and a few exhibitions. So it, 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 it led to developing more confidence in me that I could actually share these thoughts and ideas that I had to a broader audience. So I think um, because I, I would like to talk about Nuvu, how do you think what you guys do here relates to to that, yeah, to your own personal experience. Absolutely. You know, I think that some of the most formative experiences for me as a learner happened when I was in architecture school. And I would say that I can't speak for my other co-founders, but I know that that, that was a pretty transformative moment. And it definitely has shaped 
how we think about education. And one of the reasons why we started NewView was because we saw the power of creativity and that creative process and the design process that could be really a powerful tool for not only designers or individuals who think of themselves as creative, but it could actually be a tool for thinking about the world around you and developing skills and for broadening the way that you're thinking about things through going through this process and actually being in an environment and a space that really nurtures that and exposes you to interesting ideas. And I think the one of the pieces that is really valuable here at New View, but you know, it's something that I also experienced as a as a young architect and designer um, in architecture school, which was you being in an environment where you grow to be so receptive to feedback and critique, and you're constantly surrounded in an environment where people are creating different things, and it's you become much more open to receiving that feedback. And I think that's a really big part of how one learns is by seeing the world through someone else's eyes and synthesizing that and trying to make your own meaning out of it through that work that you're producing. And I think that process, which seems very intangible in a way, is something that has been really powerful, a powerful learning experience for me. And it's something that we really try and bring to the forefront here at NewView. So I think those that those sort of experiences really made me interested in and much more reflective about learning and the educational process and the educational model. Um, for the most part, I had a very traditional educational experience up until high school. And it was interesting. I think one of the periods when I was in India, my mom was actually homeschooling my brother and I, and it was it was the most fun of my you know uh, years in in school because it, in a way there was a a lot more self direction, and you know you, my mom could take us on tangents that you just wouldn't be able to go on in a traditional school setting. Um, and it also gave me more time to be able to focus on my other interests. Um, so, you know, and I and I think of kind of architecture school where there is this structure present and you have this design brief, but you are still able to bring a lot to that based on your personal interests and the way you think about the world. And I think those are really key ingredients that we've kind of taken away from our mo most meaningful architectural experiences and try to draw them into how and why we do education the way we do here at NewView. So can you give us an idea of how the dynamic works here before we keep talking about NewView so people yeah. understand how this school that we're, at, we're in right now is different than others and what a period of uh, education of a uh, teenager might it replace? Yeah. So as I was mentioning, you know, we really started the school to be a creative space where students could really understand their own personal creative process and apply that to many big challenges and problems in the world. And we didn't really see a school that existed like that and, um, and wanted to really create that space and model it after what you'd find in an architecture school but for a younger audience and not just tailored to architecture. So we, Saeed, David, and I, who are the three co-founders, we started the school back in 2010. And at that time, to be honest, 
we had only this idea of how we could use the architecture studio model in an educational setting outside of architecture and how could that really be a pedagogy that could define a whole school. And what was really unique was we wanted to create a space where in, in a school that there weren't traditional grades, we weren't tied to a traditional schedule and hour-long subject blocks. We wanted to be very interdisciplinary. We wanted to work across ages and grades. Um, so we didn't believe that this whole notion of separating ages and grades is is really um, a fruitful mission and really make it about hands-on projects so that it was an applied context. And we also really wanted to bring in people that when we were at MIT that we saw that were doing really amazing work in other disciplines, um, that we could actually invite them into the school to be able to lead studios around their interests and passion areas and expertise. And so that sort of passion really translates even to the students. And we thought, you know, how can we combine all of these ingredients and create a school from that and really put the learning at the center of the student instead of predefining here are the subjects that students need to learn. Let's begin with here are interesting things that are happening in the world and how can you bring them into the context of the studio and have students come up with projects around that. And so that became kind of the framework for the school that we designed in 2010. And I think what was really radical at that time was also this notion that students wouldn't be doing, focusing on multiple subjects, that they would just have one studio, one project that they're working on for two weeks at a time. And they get to go deep into that project. And I think that also came again from looking at our experiences in an architecture school where the studio becomes your primary focus and you might have four or five other subjects, but somehow they just, you know, disappear into the background in a way or they really help to support that main studio. And there's an obsession that comes because you're so deeply entwined into that project that you're working on and so motivated by it. So could we replicate that into a K-12 school? So that's kind of, you know, we really started on those principles. So, say you know, one of the big differences, again, was this focus that on studios, hands-on learning, not having subjects, having students working across ages and grades. And we designed the whole trimester based around these studio modules and brought in really interesting experts who a number of them were our colleagues and friends from MIT to teach these studios. So there weren't traditional teachers. and. It just became this really kind of exciting place where every two weeks we had new studios and new, we call them coaches, who are our experts coming in from all different disciplines, from physicists to rocket scientists to filmmakers to folks that were focused on sustainable energy. And they would bring their backgrounds and we would help to design a brief for the studio uh, that was open-ended enough that students could actually, you know, come up with different projects ideas within that and then develop them within that two-week period and really focusing in on that creative process. And that formula actually hasn't changed and it's been eight years. There's something that we're doing that really, you know, resonates, I think, with the students and with the coaches and with this whole model that we have. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but I see a pattern that seems to be, well, first, try to focus on one thing at a time. And that's super important to, you know, that's the real world. Like you usually have one concern that you're going to tackle at, at a time and then you kind of leave everything on the side. So that that's point one. And then the second, I would say that also kind of taking away the different courses that you have and just 
doing one studio, uh, it seems to me that you're focusing not to undermine the topics that you treat here and that they're like global issues, and but actually the what I see that's important is the core values or the the attitude to to challenge a project or to face a challenge or uh, the, basically the skills and the internal growth that you want students to have. What would you say are those kind of key values that you have in? I don't know, you might tell the students or might not. Uh, what are those that you have in mind that, that you want a student from Nubu to slowly acquire? I would say a big part of what we talk about is that iterative process and being able to reassess or reexamine the object that you're designing or the product that you're designing um, or that artifact and continually look at it with new and fresh eyes at each step of the process and how can you continue to develop it and refine it through different feedback that you're receiving and different viewpoints or or thoughts from potential users of the thing that you're creating. And so that's a very challenging process. And it's something that within a traditional school setting, you kind of might see aspects of it in very slim and narrow facets um, when you're editing a paper that you've written in, in an English class or a language class. And you have to re-examine the structure and the flow and is the content or is the narrative really there? And it's interesting because I can relate that to a bit of the design process and this constant like revision attitude, but also that ability to see things in different ways as you're working and, and observe the world in, in a different way or to observe something about how someone's interacting with something that sets off a series of different ideas that then inspires you to think about your project in a different way. So I think that process is one of the most challenging. And I'd say that we really focus on that through this design studio model is how can students iteratively, iteratively design and refine what it is they're working on. And, you know, you mentioned a little bit of um, that piece of, of, you know, I think it definitely relates to, to dealing with challenges, unexpected challenges when th things don't work out or you suddenly get feedback that is not what you expected um, and how to deal with critique in a, in a positive and constructive way. I think those are all other skills that students learn. They also kind of, you know, not in a very overt way, but through this process of visualizing their ideas and constantly communicating them to others around them, they get stronger at communication in itself. And I think that's a really key piece as a artist, designer, or engineer, or any, any person, being able to communicate what you are trying to create, what's going on um, in terms of your intentions with a project, and that can be visually, um, verbally. So I think a lot of our students, by virtue of going through this process and constantly having to explain what it is that they're doing, definitely build those skills. Um, and I think that piece of representation also in terms of how you represent your ideas is is very important in that process. So they, they definitely learn a lot about presentation and representation skills when it comes to their ideas. So those are some of, I'd say, some of the core skills. And one of the big pieces, which, again, you you don't really find in too many educational settings, but it is becoming a bigger piece is that aspect of collaboration and teamwork, which again, going back, we don't live in in a world where we're all 
siloed off from one another. We're constantly interacting, interfacing with one another in life. And in the real world, you're always working in larger teams. And so we really try and make sure that all the work that happens here at NewView is also team-based and students are working collaboratively with, at times with individuals that they really disagree with. And so how do you mediate those differences through that process? So I think that's a, a big sort of piece and skill that students learn learn here is how to collaborate and, and be constructive through that process. Yeah, I completely agree with the part of like communication in, I mean, in the architecture setting, we see how like you have to kind of do your design from idea to something that you need to then explain to your peers and to your teacher and you kind of become in some way a marketer, mm -hmm. I, you know, in, in the good part of the of the word. And I always thought, you know, I have some friends who studied marketing and yeah, their career, they probably have a lot of subjects or like courses are really interesting. I don't really know what they are, but I also thought like, are they really acquiring this skill that is what's going to be really valuable for them to, you know, you can use any techniques or anything, but you need to have that human to human, you know, explanation of like, this is why I'm doing this uh, or this is why I did it. And this is why you need to believe me. Mm -hmm. So that that's super interesting that you might um, get certain abilities or skills, personal skills from something that is completely detached from other disciplines. But I think in Spain, we've seen like with, I mean, I, I don't know if because due to the crisis or what, but a lot of architects are kind of, you know, diverting from their architecture path and like reinventing themselves. And it seems like there is um, a lot of initiative on creating something from scratch, being criticized, iterating over and over and putting something out there and explaining it to the world and expecting people to believe them, right? Another thing that I wanted you to comment on is, um, so, you know, are you familiar with the term of growth mindset? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, as a sketcher or like designer, I've come across a lot of people who give for granted, oh, you have a gift and you know how to draw because, you know, you were born with this. How does that play here at Nouveau? At the, how do students who believe they cannot draw or they cannot design or they are not good talkers, how do they acquire that? Not not only the skill, but how do they acquire that growth mindset of believing in themselves and say like, okay, I don't know how to play uh, the guitar because I have never tried or I have not put enough time. Yeah, it's a, it's we hear it time and time again when students come in here that just because you know I think that in the world, unfortunately, we somehow set certain benchmarks that if you can sketch really well, that means you're an artist, or if you can, you know, if you enjoy being on the computer that, you know, you're you're going to go in a direction which is STEM-based. And if not, then you, you really can't touch those fields. In reality, it's, it is so much about how much energy and dedication you have towards anything that really you're able to fine-tune yourself and your skill set and develop that craft. And I've I've experienced that for myself personally, but it's something that even here at NewView, we try to really uh, kind of engender in the students is this philosophy that you don't have to come in being great at anything, but it's really about how much time that you put into it that really matters. Um, and I think that's where that hands-on piece is really important because it sort of forces you to stop um, thinking about things, overthinking, and just puts you in a position where you have to do it. And again, I think that studio culture that's here is really interesting because students are in a really 
tight time frame asked to do a lot. And it it makes that whole idea of I can't do it almost recess into the background because they realize, okay, in two weeks, I really have to have something with my partner to show. And it really also helps that they're working with a teammate because all those areas that you think, you know, I'm not so comfortable in or how am I going to achieve this when you're actually working alongside someone, you can fill each other's gaps in and actually learn from one another. But I'd say that the kind of the piece of being most important is the hands-on piece that from the start, reiterate through any exercise that we're doing, we start off with even early sketching representation exercises so that students get to understand some of the basic elements of design. And during that first few days, we'll hear from just about every student, well, I don't know how to draw. I don't know how to sketch. I mean, this is really hard. Um, But they do it. And we focus more on, you know, the techniques and just getting comfortable. And how do you get an idea across? It's not about having this perfect sketch, but how can you use these tools to communicate? And I think that that attitude presents itself, and I think amongst our team and the coaches through all of the studios, it's really not about what you know, it's about how much time you're willing to put into it. And you start to see over time those skills being developed and the attitudes change from the, from the students because they see suddenly after two weeks, oh, wait a minute, you know, this thing isn't so bad. Or the second iteration of this that I just drew looks a hundred times better than the the sketch of the apple that I did before. And I see this and it's so evident and they can see it. And and I think that becomes motivation to go on. I think what what becomes really, I'd say the hardest thing is that sometimes that inertia before you start something where you're, again, overthinking things and you don't want to get into building that physical model because you feel you need to have everything figured out. At times, we're just like, stop thinking and just do it. And it's such a powerful kind of lesson in life also um, where you just, that ability to just get into that flow is so important, I think, for your own creative process and also getting over those hangups of how am I going to do this? Um, and you try and sometimes something doesn't work and you continue, continue to evolve. And that for us is so important as a learning process and that process of iteration because it has all of these other kind of tangentially very important qualities about it. What would you say to someone who's afraid of trying something and like doing, let's say, singing or sketching or like even doing comedy or anything that they are kind of afraid? Yeah, I think the lesson I would say is just to not find out too much about it and just jump into it, which <laughs> I, I've actually found that I've ended up doing things that I, you know, that I wouldn't have if I knew too much about them because it would become too intimidating or the fear grows or the uncertainty becomes so large or you just feel I don't have all the answers. And I think that that actually, you know, being non-educators starting a school, we were, it was in our favor to not know everything about the system. So then we actually had a fresh set of eyes. We weren't beat down by what we couldn't do. And we were able to apply a very different model um, the studio-based model to education. And I think, you know, it really helps sometimes not not coming at it from an outsider's perspective. And I see that even in the students a lot of times that some of the students who've never done any sort of filmmaking um, are suddenly in a documentary filmmaking class and they have 
such interesting ideas and they don't have maybe some of the preconceptions of how a story or a narrative should unfold. And as a result, they can be more inventive with it. So I think it's always, I would say, a valuable proposition to try something that you've never done before um, and see what happens. I guess the um, part of the initiative of, you know, of a student coming to Nuvu uh, comes from their parents. What's in Nuvu? Is it Nuvu? Yeah, well, you said it both ways correctly. It started off as New View from New Views and New Perspectives. And then students wanted to make it a little bit more hip. A few years down the line, they started calling it Nuvu. Um, so there's the old school crowd of students who really loves New View and the new school crowd that loves Nuvu. So it's both. Okay. <laughs> the initiative um, in part comes from the parents. Um, what's in Nuvu? For them when they see it and when they approach you? Yeah. And I would say that it definitely comes from parents. Um, but I think when students visit here, uh, we try and really understand the students' motivation for being here rather than just the parents. Because as you, as you know, this sort of environment is really fueled by student motivation and engagement. And if students come here because their parents thought it would be a good idea, you can see that that won't really translate down the line. They have to really believe in wanting to pursue an educational environment where it's really grounded on their own motivation and not driven by external factors like grades and test scores. So they realize very quickly that that's sort of the, the motivation here. But I'd say that definitely families as a whole, I can say they're really interested by New View because it's not the traditional school setting. And sometimes it's because certain students have learning challenges where they are not doing really well in a traditional school environment and are struggling or they're high achievers and they're feeling bored in, in that sort of environment or something in between. And they're really passionate about projects that they're working on, but they never get to do that in school, or they really are interested in physics, but have never really had the opportunity to do anything hands-on. So we get a lot of reasons for why families, students, and parents find us and are really intrigued by this type of model and this environment, but definitely because we aren't doing things run-of-the-mill. And there is this focus on students really being at the center of their learning versus being in an environment that's really directed by, you know, certain standards um, or certain subjects and teachers having to really deliver that content in a very rigorous way. And I'd say that sort of flexibility is something that families really gravitate towards and, uh, and students as well when they're here is being in an environment that is very hands-on, that really sort of is interactive and engaging. That, I'd say, is a, one of the key reasons why, why they are interested in NUVIO. How do you think news education will affect students' lives in the future? I mean, because this is such a new concept, right, from eight years to now. I, in my own mind, I thought like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe in 10, 20 years we see these people having a different mindset and maybe going into roles that, you know, that they say, oh, this guy is now doing this thing and he actually went to study new. Maybe that has something to do with it. So how do you, what do you think that that kind of change in mindset will be? Yeah, I would say it happens 
you know, we we see it, it, it takes all different time frames, I would say. And, but what's been so interesting um, has been seeing students who've at least been here for three months, but we also have students that are here for multiple years at New View. And a few years ago, we actually started graduating students. So that students, you know, this is their high school program. And then they go, they've gone on to college and university after, after New View. But what's been really interesting from day one was hearing from the students who had gone through New View, how transformative it was for them and how they started to think about their own learning process in a different way. And they, they started to question their own, if they were returning back to a school, you know, they started to question their learning process in that sort of environment. So I, I would say that that's been there. And that's one of the reasons I think why personally, I would say it's been such an am amazing journey and has really fueled me to, you know, be involved and continue to grow and build what we're doing is really those student experiences. And what I think we saw a lot um, was students, because again, being in this environment where students are trying things that they wouldn't have otherwise, they, you know, students might have been really passionate and interested in art, but suddenly they're in a studio where they are doing uh, the design of 3D printed prosthetics and thinking about physics and other disciplines that they would never have thought would have been areas of interest to them get super excited and passionate about it. And that actually translated into internships that they were really interested in and ultimately what programs that they apply to for college and university. And so when you see such dramatic change and you, you see it within students, that's when you start to think that this is really having a pretty big impact and you can see it right away. And it's not something that we have to wait 10 or 20 years for. But what's interesting is those experiences, I feel, deepen with age and time. And the fact that they can have those types of experiences when they're much younger really frees them to really um, take a hold of their other life experiences and I, and and really make the most of it. So, so many of our students who went to college, some of them who were maybe dissatisfied with, they thought college was going to be this really alternative place where they could be creating and very interdisciplinary. And unfortunately, if we look at many colleges and universities, they're still pretty traditional. But they kind of found a space to create their own majors or create blended degrees. And I think that sort of self-direction, really the seeds of it are sown through experiences like this and going through New View where you have to be doing that and reassessing and establishing your own pathway at any given time through going through this learning experience in this type of model, that it really trains you in a certain way to deal with unexpected things in life or to change things if you aren't satisfied with them. So we definitely see and hear about those stories so often. And, you know, I just had one of our students who was our first four-year graduate, Kate, who now is at the RISD Brown dual degree program. And she kind of fell in love with engineering after spending a few years at New View. And she was really, really an amazing artist. And she wanted to blend those two and got into this program. And, you know, she's she's kind of also tailored that program to really fit her needs. And over the summer applied for a bunch of fellowships and grants for different projects. Um, one of them was a project that she started here at New View, which was based around musical prosthetics. 
that she was really passionate about. She wanted to combine her interest in dance and art and actually got funding for it and has developed, you know, other prototypes for this project over the summer. So hearing about that from our students kind of makes you realize that those experiences really touched a core in those students and it doesn't, it resonates almost immediately with some of them. Um, so then you, I wonder 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, what is a person like Kate going to be doing? I mean, I can't even imagine because <laughs> the possibilities are, are have really opened up in so many different areas. Can you comment a bit on the expansion of Nuvu around the world? <laughs> yeah, it's and that's also been something that has been kind of a big vision idea is how we can spread this creative learning of, around the world so that it's not just focalized in this little, sometimes what we call a bubble being in Cambridge, where there's great institutes like MIT and Harvard, um, but really making this type of model and program accessible to other students around the world. And the model that we originally thought that would really propagate was, could we take this new view model that's in Cambridge and just replicate it? And as we know, with, with many things, if it's Media Lab or other sort of niche schools or products that are out there, sometimes it's a whole series of factors that make something exist where it does. And so we had, you know, a lot of challenges trying to scale that type of model. But a few years ago, we were working with a with one of our partner schools that was in Florida. And they were really interested in innovation and bringing more creative studio-based learning. And we thought it would be a great opportunity to kind of test out how we could do that in a remote way within the school. And for, for so long, you know, NewView was all about creating this off-the-grid school where we weren't really connected to the traditional system. So we had the freedom and independence to do what we wanted to do. And suddenly, here was this interesting opportunity to do something, but within a very traditional school. So we took up on that kind of challenge and designed a program. And it was sort of a lot of the, the structure had been developed by the school, but they were unsuccessful in delivering the program. So we came in and developed this model, which we now call New View X, which is really creating these micro new views within schools. Um, so they look a little bit different. And the, the studio experience isn't exactly how studio happens here, which is, you know, full, fully immersed all day long for two or three weeks, you have one studio and then you go to another studio. That model doesn't work in a traditional school where students still have subjects and grades and other activities going on. So instead, we created a model that was more how could we create this innovation studio, but it's split sometimes over multiple days, every other day for shorter blocks, and bring that sort of coaching spirit and design spirit by actually embedding some of our staff in the school. And so um, that's the model that we have. And we've kind of grown it and expanded this sort of model of of New View X schools, and we have around 10 schools now that we work with. Eight of them are around the U.S. and two are international schools, which has been really exciting. But all of them sort of exist in really different circumstances, some in very rural areas, some public schools, some private schools, um, some urban schools. And, and so we really tap into creating studios that resonate with local challenges. So the studio topics really mirror what's happening in that in that environment, which gives it a lot of specificity and locality. And we're also working to connect these schools, something that 
also doesn't get to happen in an educational environment where schools tend to be pretty independent. And and so we're trying to create this network of schools where some of the schools are now collaborating and students are working on studio projects uh, with one another in teams in completely different continents. So that's been really an area of interest and growth is how can we create more of this global network of young people who are developing their creative talents and focusing them towards real world challenges and really sort of making an impact in their communities. So for people who might be interested on their kids trying maybe or whoever's listening maybe wants to, to try Nuvu, I know you have also a smaller format, like right? Like you have some shorter workshops and then you have the trimester, as you mentioned. Could you mention what those formats could be and what could be the easiest commitment, right, to, to yeah. get to try uh, to be a student at Nuvu? And also how can people connect with Nuvu online? Yeah, so what's, I'd say the shortest format to the longest format. The shortest form format has been our summer programs where students can register for a two-week-long studio and they can do multiple studios. And right now, our summer program here in Cambridge is focused on middle school students and high school students, so grades 6 through 12. Um, and we actually have, for our high school program, partnership with the MIT Architecture Department. So we host our program in the Architecture Department there, and that's been really exciting. This is our second year. And we get to do a lot more advanced studios with the high schoolers. That's sort of our shortest format. And then during the academic year, we have students that enroll for a trimester, a semester, and a full year and multi-year students. And so that all depends on how long they're interested in being here. And, and it's sometimes we've had students that have come in for a trimester or semester and then never left. Um, and ended up graduating from here. So it's a pretty flexible model. So we have during the academic year, both what, what we call short-term students who are here for a trimester or semester, and then longer-term students that are there for multiple years, all in the same space, working together and in studios together. So it creates a really kind of interesting experience within within the school. So you don't have the same demographic of students throughout each of the four years. It's it's changing. And, and during the academic year, we have students all the way from grades seven through 12 that are, that are at the school. And how can people connect uh, with Nuvo Online? Yes. So you can go to our website. Um, there's a lot of content there. It's cambridge.nuvistudio.com. Or you can also just put nuvistudio.org and it'll take you to our website. We have some great videos on our YouTube page, and it just gives you a really good sense of the culture of the place and the student experience. Um, and there's always Instagram, too. So we, I am really happy of having heard um, about the Nuvu model, and I hope uh, other people also uh, enjoyed it. I think it's a, great, it's a great initiative to actually try to put that mindset. And I think what really strikes me is that, that it's actually real, that it's, you know, you a lot of times you have an idea and formalizing is super hard. And I guess for you guys, it has been super hard, but you managed to do it and it's happening. So that's, that's super cool. I would like to learn a bit more about uh, Savagole. So I'm going to ask you some questions to learn more a bit about your life habits and your daily work and other curiosities. Oh, yes. Curiosities. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So how does your day-to-day -day look like? It gets to be, I'd say from the morning to the evening, it goes from being pretty regimented to a little bit more free flow. I never used to be a morning person, I'd say. And I hear this a lot from architects and designers that they're just so used to being 
up late at night that you become a bit of a night owl. And I think I've always been that. And for some reason, my family, we always sit there talking about we should go to sleep, we should go to sleep, but no one ever actually goes to sleep early. <laughs> so we we tend to be up late at night. But, you know, I've realized, you know, with the school, we pushed the start time as late as we could here at Newview. So we start at nine. Well, that's when the students are supposed to, you know, we're actually supposed to start. But I never just like starting my day and immediately jumping into something. So my day actually begins pretty early. So I, I tend to wake up sometimes around 5.30, 5.45. And I like to do some sort of yoga or exercise, go for a run and give myself some time to do that in the morning and just let my mind be free. It also gives me some time to think about my day ahead without getting too attached to any specific details. And I'll probably get into studio and have some breakfast and then actually get started with my day um, here at New View. And the day can look very different. There might be meetings. There might be opportunities to think about big, bigger picture visioning pieces, which has been a lot on our mind, I'd say the last few months is thinking about where, where are we headed as an organization and trying to plan that out, but also down to thinking about certain studios that we might be running um, and interesting partners that we might want to bring in for certain studios or interesting individuals that might have something unique that they want to share in this environment. So my day is usually spent doing a, a wide variety of things. And really, I think my my title of chief creative officer really lives true because I'm doing different things throughout the day. Um, and it, a lot of it is sort of, you know, coming up with new ideas for, for various programs and initiatives that we're running. And then towards the tail end of my day, you know, there, it's interesting. I think I've Outside of New View, which is definitely my focus day and night, you know, at different points during the year, I've taken on other projects. As, as I've mentioned, I, I'm sort of a project person. I don't like moments when I'm, I'm still for a really long period, unless if I really want to be still for the act of being still. But some of, some of my evenings, depending on what time of year, it might be dedicated towards working on another project that has nothing to do with New View. But in some ways, it does relate. So that I also was doing this. Um, I, I did the how to make almost anything kind of Fab Academy course the last um, six months and graduated <laughs> at another graduation. But that was also taking up my nights and weekends for a period of time. So there'll always be other things kind of post work that uh, I'm involved in. And then Usually it's some hour of the night and then I'll, uh, you know, I'll go to sleep. And I, I think I also try and make time for family and friends. So I think that's a big part is just, you know, just as connections with people is, is a big part of my, my, my life. Um, so I try to make sure whether it's on the weekends or even on the evenings, really catching up with, with people that are important. How, so how's your commute? My commute is not bad at all. <laughs> I live um, probably about 10 minutes away from Newview. So I have in the past taken the T. At some point, I was within walking distance. So I used to walk over to Newview. Um, now I drive over, but it's about 10-ish 10, 10 minutes. That's a 
say a pretty short commute. <laughs> and and within that period, I usually like to catch up on news around the world, what's going on, and just, you know, get a better sense of what's happening outside of Cambridge and Boston. So apart from Nuvu and some of those projects, uh, what other activities do you like doing in non-work time? Yeah, I love running. And there was a period, I think, in the fall up until late winter when uh, I wasn't well, so I couldn't run. So that wasn't a part of or any sort of physical activity. So I was kind of recuperating after being kind of ill for a bit of time. And I really missed actually not being able to run because it's such a meditative period. And it's funny, sometimes some of my friends will be like, we should go running together. I'm like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> that's that's sort of me time. And I, and I really like to have that space where it's just myself and my own thoughts and, and the freedom of just being able to go somewhere and not even be, not even have a bike where it's just you on your own two feet getting somewhere and exploring a new place or a new pathway that allows you to kind of see things differently for, for a bit of time. And of course, I definitely do some daydreaming while I'm running. So that's happening. <laughs> um, so I definitely find that to be uh, a really important part. And I also like to cook, you know, in, in, when I'm at home and that also is just something that's fun and I don't like to work off of too many recipes or I like to see what ingredients I have and have some kind of rough idea of where I'm headed and then just start to experiment a little bit. Um, and it usually turns out pretty good. <laughs> and it's always some sort of fusion between um, Kokani food, which is sort of the the region of India where I'm from, and, you know, mixed in with at times Thai flavors, uh, sometimes Italian or Mexican food. Um, so, so there's depending on what I'm feeling that day. So that's that's definitely something that I love to do, and I love to have and host like you know small dinner parties um, and invite a few friends over, um, and just to there's something about having meals at home where it's it's a lot more informal and things can linger that I I'd, I'd like to do that every now and then and just even if it's in the middle of the week I think a lot of people perhaps focus on weekends versus weekdays and it's really I I don't see those things as very distinct um so some days I'll have a dinner party and it's a Tuesday night and it's you know or a Monday night and it's yeah, we have, you know, things to do the next day, but I feel like it's important to just weave it into whatever's happening um, at that point in time. Nice. I also like running and cooking. <laughs> <laughs> I I just was hoping that you said that because like I have this thing with Jose Luis like, where he has to have a plan to cook and I'm like completely <laughs> like start like putting things and then I find, I realize I have more stuff and then I put it and then I start doing something and experiment and he says like that's not I don't know it's just like funny it's funny you get to see how different people's personalities in the kitchen it it really becomes extreme and you're like oh wow you are that person <laughs> I, I actually learned a lot about myself he pointed that out he pointed that he has a plan from when he's at the supermarket buying mm -hmm. the things and I mean if you want to do something you, you go to a supermarket buy it but he kind of starts planning from there mm -hmm. up to what he's going to do at home. And I'm a bit more of a mess. And yeah. I think that's how I work when I create an architectural project or when I, yeah, when I do almost anything, like mm -hmm. even software, like I kind of start rough idea. I mm -hmm. don't want to have a huge outline of 
everything I'm going to do and mm-hmm. the plan. And I kind of always start messing up a bit with things and then it starts taking shape and I reevaluate that and keep going from there. So, But uh, yeah, I guess different yeah. approaches <laughs> both work. Okay, so when do you think you get your best ideas? Mm, that is a really good question. I find that when I am not focusing on the thing that I want to be focusing and figure out, I get better ideas. And that happens sometimes when I'm traveling or I'm away from home base, whatever that home base might be, even if that home base is, you know, a studio where I'm working or at New View where I spend a lot of time. If just having a space outside of that typical routine definitely helps. And it's really funny, but sometimes also when I'm showering where it's just, you know, again, there's a moment where you're just cleansing everything that I'm not thinking about something, but still in the back of my mind where two two things will, will connect. And that's really important. And, I, and so throughout, it, I'm lucky in the sense that I do have family in California. So I do tend to travel during our holidays back home. And it's really nice because it allows me, it really feels like a different space because also because I'm home and somehow you you behave differently depending on what environment you're in. And so I find that I'm thinking about things differently just being in, in that sort of environment. Um, so yeah, so I'd say some of my best ideas definitely come when I'm traveling, um, when you know, when I'm running sometimes and not really focused on the activity of thinking or thinking about that thing at that particular moment. Sometimes I've woken up in the middle of the night, you know, and had somewhat of, I don't know if it's an epiphany moment, but definitely those moments where it, it really comes together. And that stream of thought, sometimes that's happening when I'm running, where I'm getting 50 ideas and I just can't, you know, I want to store them somewhere, but at the same time, I don't want to do anything that's going to disrupt that flow. (laughs) Um, And then by the end of it, then I'll kind of think back and try and sketch out or write down all of the ideas that came to my mind. So I try not to stop myself in those moments and, and, and just let that flow emerge. And I also get really, I love hearing talks or other people's process, whether it's through podcasts or documentaries or going to a lecture or just hearing um, other people just speak about things that they really love and are, are working on and passionate about because I stop thinking about the way that I'm thinking about something and try and really understand how they're thinking about it. And it really starts to intrigue me. So, you know, although I love architects and designers, sometimes I gravitate towards hearing talks or, or uh, from other, other folks from completely other disciplines. So I've gotten, there was a period, I think a year ago, where I started getting obsessed with chefs and their creative process um, and, and just how they approach different projects or a new menu that they're trying to create. And I found it to be so fascinating. And it started to just like resonate with me and I started to get a hundred different ideas about different things. So, so yeah, so I think those are places and spaces that I find really inspirational. What distracts you? Mm. <sighs> There's a lot. The things that distract me <laughs> are the things that distract me. It, and it, it sounds kind of funny, but well, I, I should kind of separate. It's a, it's a hard question. There's things that distract that I, I would say are positive distractions. And then there's things that distract that at times I feel like, is it a waste of energy? So I'll give you <laughs> a few examples. So if I'm listening to, or if I'm watching, I get really obsessed by a show on Netflix. It's a bit of a distraction, but at the same time, 
I'm always in this mindset of, can I draw something out of it that will be enriching? Is it uh, somebody's experience or is it the visual quality of this thing that I'm watching? Are there some hidden ideas of how humans interact that I can gather? So that to me is like a positive distraction. Other times, if it's a distraction where if it's something like social media, I know that there's a lot of focus on social media and, and, and Facebook and Instagram, and I've tried to become more conscientious about time spent on distractions in my mind that don't add value or positivity into my life, or maybe even create a boost of energy in a way that directs me towards something that might be more constructive, that I find those distractions to be non-productive distractions. And I think trying to fine-tune what that is, I think I, I continually try and do that. Because I think sometimes a distraction, if it means like I, I see a, a really cute cat <laughs> that's walking on the side path, sidewalk and I go and I spend 15 minutes there, that to me, I would never see that, you know, as a as a anything harmful or negative from that distraction. But yeah, there are some facets and I'd say that probably aspects of social media definitely would be something that, you know, might be in my mind a distraction. How do you deal with notifications? I've actually turned off all of my notifications on my on my phone. I'd say all of the, at least the ones I, I should say I get a notification as a numeric in my app or in my buzz, but I don't actually see any of the visual notifications. And and that's a really I don't have notifications set for my Gmail for for my email. So I think I think it's a really I've started to become more aware of the fact of just hearing something buzz or something notify you just has built like a certain level of anxiety at moments um, unnecessarily. So So I try and eliminate those pieces, realizing that, you know, we live in a world right now where sometimes things are timely so that, you know, I will continue to check up on things, but, but try and be mindful of that. And how do you process email? Yeah, I think it's something that if I'm working throughout the day, I am checking pretty, I'd say pretty consistently, unless if I'm blocking off some time to work on a proposal or putting together thoughts around a studio program that I realize checking email every five minutes is not doing the thing that I'm doing much service. But it is very hard, I think, in a in a connected environment where if you're the same tool that you're using to do one task, you have access to all these other apps and programs that you have to be very deliberate in terms of how you monitor yourself. And that's can be very challenging. The, the more seamless it becomes, uh, the harder you have to try sometimes to just be very disciplined about it. Those are the parts where I think being able to kind of reflect and, and assess what is important to you and how to, how to kind of regulate it is, is really crucial. How do you disconnect? Disconnect. Um, do you disconnect? I'd say the times, which I'm sure people are going to laugh, but the times that I've disconnected more recently over a stretch of time has been when I've been at Burning Man. <laughs> you know, I, I was, I, I've been going to Burning, Burning Man even before like smartphones and things were a thing or where, before there was access to a signal. But lately, I think that has like definitely forced me at times to for at least a week, 10 days straight, not actually 
touch my phone or my computer. But you know, what's really helpful nowadays is when I'm actually working with students. Um, and this often happens more at our new UX schools because we have coaches here. But when I'm working with students, I there's no time to and and you know to check your phone or your or your email and it's really kind of amazing to go for that stretch where you're actually just feeding off of the energy of the students and vice versa having these interesting conversations or helping them through work through something and i'd say those are the periods and then uh when i'm with my nieces also that's a whole nother <laughs> so so yes, I'd say those are kind of the moments. And yeah, it's it's I'd say it's a pretty challenging part. I do wish some days that I could completely disconnect for more 24-hour periods. And I'm pretty sure I can, but it's um again, it's become such a part of my rhythm from day to day that it just doesn't happen. Unless if I'm on a long flight to India, which is another place where it's really peaceful. <laughs> I wanted to know, are there any activities that you do as deliberate practice to get better at something or to keep improving? Yeah, it's interesting. I would say the art pieces in some ways that I've been working on, the interactive art pieces, have been one aspect of that. And in terms of understanding how others can experience the art in a very emotional way. So a lot of the installations have been focused around biofeedback and using uh, and tapping into humans' biorhythms so you don't have to necessarily speak or but really can engage with a piece of art and to really challenge myself to to create these pieces with other artists and team members. Um so that's been kind of I'd say an ongoing practice, but I'd say kind of on the smaller scale day-to-day definitely uh yoga off and on has been sort of something that has entered and exited my life at different points in time, but it's it's definitely allows me to focus in on my body more and just my breathing. Uh simple, simple, simple things that have really helped me to to just be more mindful of myself and my world around me and other people and their kind of emotions. Do you ever get bored? I do, but very rarely. And I I have to say, when I start to feel that sense of boredom, it's the one thing that will probably drive me crazy. (laughs) If there's one thing that really bothers me. So I try not to get into that space. And I'll definitely fill up that if I, if I am starting to feel a sense of boredom. Do you prefer talking about success or technology right now? I've been, I would say technology. I, I've been reading a lot. It was funny. I was watching the hearings from, I guess it was last week, the congressional hearings with, um, but also with Jack Dorsey of Twitter and thinking a lot about the role of technology in our lives and going beyond as we've started to think about it just as a tool for connection, but how it can actually become a subversive tool for marginalizing democracy and and actually, you know, f- for creating a lot of negative socially driven impact uh, for individuals. We're getting through trolling, through cyberbullying and cyber attacks. Um, so there's yeah, so there's been this sort of increasing, I'd say, conscientiousness around how people are using 
these tools and instruments that we have and what type of social responsibility kind of we have as designers, creators, engineers, users, uh, policymakers around how technology is disseminated and used and protocols around that. And I have been thinking a lot about this. And because even at NewView, we do use a lot of technology, but we try and really think of it as a, as a tool. And, and the bigger picture is always the creative process. But some days I, I went in my cyn- more cynical moments, you know, I do have that moment, like, are we better off as a society and globally because we have these enhanced technologies in our lives, ha- have our lives improved? And where are we headed? And some of that can be very frightening. Um, you know, I think I, I was reading last night in the tech review, a lot of the more subversive, potentially subversive ways that technology can be used if it's to, you know, with AI and machine learning to actually, you know, there's plenty of examples and apps out there where you can do a lot of facial switching where I can put, you know, your face on my body um, (laughs) and vice versa. And at some point, we won't even be able to recognize content that is not real and someone has actually constructed and it'll seem as if it's something that someone was saying or behaving in a certain way. And how are we ever... How are we in the future going to be able to distinguish what is real and what is not real and what is fake uh, or what is inaccurate? And it's sort of unsettling because it's sort of the basis of how we interact and live is based around what we perceive and understand as truth and, and what is real in this world. And I think even with virtual reality, we're sort of seeing that the mind is actually changing through having these simulations which aren't any more simulations so so yeah i I think about a lot of this and i'm I'm very interested in it and even you know a lot of the art that i've been working on with pulse and bloom and with uh, grove definitely works with technology and using sensors um and custom built sensors to be able to understand human emotions and 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 visualize that so and, and as a way of connecting people so Though the technology piece, I think, can be, again, depending on how it's being used uh, and the medium and how inclusive it is, it can serve different purposes. Going back a bit to what we talked about before, how do you think social media affects the students in their growth mindset when they see, I'm coming from the point of like, you know, that you have this huge exposure to a lot of other creatives, artists, designers. How does that affect students? Yeah, it's interesting. I th- and it's it's a it's an interesting question also for students of different ages because I'm starting to see slightly different patterns. You know, I think the teenage generation that we also have at NewView, they definitely there they have some reservations about social media. So there are certain platforms that as we know, like a lot of our students don't use Facebook. Some of them use Twitter, but I'd say that even that less so. Um, But they are on Snapchat and they are on Instagram. And they kind of see those tools as ways of connecting with their friends and their social circle and for others that they are interested in but don't have direct access to. So they are a lot more, I say, distinguishing amongst, you know, how and when and they're using those social media tools, which is interesting. But they also, you know, their lives are partially in this space 
and partially in this sort of online virtual space. And I, I feel like they're a lot more seamlessly integrated than I'd say our generation in a, in a way. So that's been really interesting to, to see that. And then it's been really interesting to see my nieces who are, you know, five and eight, still pretty young. Not so much. They understand social media. They're not on the any uh, kind of social media site as of yet. But it's been so interesting to see how they consume video content and how they are on YouTube and how they navigate towards content that really appeals to them. They're really interested in starting their own YouTube channels. Um, and they're so, you know, in my mind, they're pretty young, but they completely understand sort of the inner workings of that in a way that even some of the, our teenage students use those technologies in very different ways. So I, I'm, I just wonder when they are teenagers, how are they going to be using social media and technology? It's really interesting to see how social media and technology kind of work their ways in, in different generations of students. Another thing that I find I'm curious about technology is who mandates how we use it. You know, we're kind of uh, taught to use certain things. I mean, to use a laser cutter, you might need to have instructions. But to use YouTube or Facebook or Instagram, you're kind of left out to all those bubbles or walkthroughs that appear on the app itself that is informing how it wants to be used. So I wonder whose responsibility it is to actually teach uh, the people what a healthy relationship with those social networks and devices is. I think it's a, I think it's a, kind of a, a a social responsibility. I I feel like there's different parts of it where it comes from that schooling environment, the educational environment, and developing good habits around that, um, or what is acceptable and what is not, and being able to navigate that because it's not black and white. None of this is black and white, and. You can use, again, those same tools in a classroom for productive means, or you can use those same tools for a destructive means. Um, and kind of understanding where that kind of boundary is, is really interesting. It also, I think, happens at home where, you know, we've definitely had instances of students, and this is definitely the case even pre-certain technology tools, but now especially who have just been up all night long, either playing games or on social media and come in, haven't gone much sleep, and are just tired during the day and can't make the most of that day. And so who's really supposed to be responsible for that? And, you know, when you're young, you're learning these uh, kind of means and how do you mediate this? And again, we'd have a lot of conversations, the fact that things are so accessible on a phone, it's in your pocket, all the more you have to become more disciplined and and be more reflective around what is what are those good practices for yourself. So I think yeah, there's sort of a social element and sometimes even in workplaces and we don't have, you know, we have a lot of conversations like should there be rules? Should there be this kind of black and white? And, and you know, I think everyone has different opinions, but we try and have, you know, I, I think we try here at New View and I feel like in my life too, I think the fewer rules the better, but if you can create that sense of social understanding and emotional understanding where you realize that your actions might have a negative impact on someone else around you or on yourself and you can be conscientious of that, that's a better circumstance than setting up a rule which says you can never use this piece of technology in this environment and that's it. 
So yes, I would say it's kind of a lot of people ha- should be participating in, in helping to create that culture. How do you understand personal success? Personal success, I think for, I would just find it, maybe it's a simple answer, but I think personal success is a sense of fulfillment that comes from trying something and doing something that you find to be challenging and something that you wouldn't do unless you put your your energy towards it. And that to me, I don't know, I, f- I find that to be in that gets in most bare bone sense, uh, a reflection of personal success. Is there anything you say to yourself every morning? Um, don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> and try and I think start the day in a, in a with a fresh mindset as as much as I can so that all the things that I thought about yesterday or done don't create this weight that I have to continue forward but I can actually maybe sh- shift directions um yeah I think sometimes I do it myself where I get weighted down by feeling I need to do something. I have to do this. And it's actually just my mindset around it. So, so yeah, I think I think kind of let it, letting go of of that and feeling like I can start start afresh. Can you think of a person you consider successful? Yeah. I would I mean the closest example in my life, personal example I would say would be my dad, partially because he had a lot of opportunities in India and he chose to come to the US and leave all of that because he just wanted kind of a fresh start and and you know I think he has the traditional story in terms of coming with $7 in your pocket because that's all you can kind of bring over and and really kind of establishing himself based around something that he really was passionate about uh so I think that was and and building off something from not really having any roots here. And I think building everything on good faith with people. That's why I think I look back and, you know, and continue to always think what is really important in life. And it it always comes down to those human relationships and those communities that you can build and people that you can trust and who will trust you. And he was able to do that. And I think, you know, give his kids good opportunities uh, where he could say, do what you really love doing, but but do that thing as best as you can. And I, I, I'll never kind of forget that piece of advice because it really made me freely focus on the thing that I wanted to do. To me, you know, his story is a story of personal success in so many ways. And I, and I, and I look to him when I, when I'm looking for, you know, what are the things that are really important in life and meaningful not to get caught up on materialistic gains but of course you know when we think about success i think there's a lot of emphasis on those material things as as a way of showing that hey i've gotten someplace and you know we've really prized that in society and really look up to people who have you know have established their value through you know having certain income and certain physical assets that they can show. And it's definitely something that through observing my dad, I've kind of realized that there's things that those are all pretty material things. How would you define simplicity? (laughs) That's that's the hardest one yet. (laughs) I would say simplicity gets to the essence of, for me, what makes me happy. 
in its most basic way. And it helps me also measure a lot of things. If I'm trying to figure out what pathway I, I would choose, whether it's for a particular relationship in my life or if it's a decision around whether to develop a partnership with the school, is it something that without looking at a thousand different reasons of why something needs to be a certain way, if it's something that is actually going to you know, feel like a source of happiness, it's something that can really tap down to some very basic things. And do I need to buy an additional three more pairs of shoes? And if it's if the answer is like, it's not going to actually make me any happier, then I'm going to choose the route of a much more simplified life and uh, which which connects more with that. Can you think of a person that has positively influenced your career? Yeah, I would say definitely there, there's probably a couple of people, but I'd say the one being an architect designer that really was pretty influential in my life was it was Zaha, Zaha Hadid. And because when I was just in architecture school, her she was one of the few female architects designers um in the field and who had such a kind of bold personality and was doing such interesting, innovative work um that I found her to at her kind of attitude to be really inspirational for me. And it really helped to make me feel like this, you know, that the kind of the profession and, and the space of design really was much more open and went beyond just architecture. So she was definitely someone who whose work I followed and, uh, and I was really intrigued by her personal life and, where, you know, her context and where she grew up and being an Iraqi-born designer and how that really influenced or not her work. So the, I would say she was definitely somebody that really I, I was really interested in growing up um, and, and work I followed and had, a, had an impact on me as a, as a young designer in the field. If you could send a message for everyone to read in the morning, what would it say? I would say, take a deep breath, leave behind any of a stressful thought or a bottleneck or a challenge that you were facing yesterday and focus on one thing that you'd like to accomplish today and do it. That would be my, my little thought to start the day. Do you have any book recommendations that have influenced your life and work? Mm, let's see. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, I've read, I'd say one book that over the years, I mean, depending on when I've read it and it's kind of off and on been an interesting book is The Alchemist. And I actually haven't read it for quite a few years, but I've read it at intervals and it's always something interesting that I read into it um, and little hidden messages that come out and connect with something that's happening in my life at that moment. You know, that's also, that's been, it's a very easy read um, in so many ways and provides some intuitive guidance and has in my life and in different points in time. And I think the first time that I read it, it was years and years and years ago is definitely referred by a very close friend of mine. So it, ha it has this interesting thought of this whole, even though I don't like the term paying it forward, but there is sort of this quality about when someone makes a book recommendation and it becomes this narrative that you can reread at different times. And it has 
different meaning. So I've also had certain movies that have done that, depending on when I've watched it at what point in my life. But I'd say from a book standpoint, that's definitely been one of the books has resonated with me. Before we end, um, where can people find more about your work and connect with you? Yeah, um, I don't have a personal website <laughs> because I tend to create project websites for the project. Uh, <laughs> so usually, um, but you can definitely find me um, on Instagram or even on Facebook uh, as a as a point of contact. And then, yeah, probably that's that's a way of actually connected with a lot of folks that I ended up collaborating on projects with, um, which has been serendipitous and, and really kind of a wonderful piece. Well, now I'm going to ask you just a few more quick questions. Is there anything particular about how you distribute your money? Personal money? Huh. Interesting question. <laughs> well, how do I distribute my money? I would say that it gets distributed in the sense of gifts, <laughs> meals, dinner, dinner parties, um, kind of travel that I do. I would say that kind of takes up a chunk. Oh, and the, and the fourth and big piece is definitely my art, the art projects. How can I forget that? <laughs> yeah, how can you forget that? Is there a purchase of something cheap, like maybe $100 or even a lot less that has impacted your life lately? Hmm. Um, well, there's probably a couple of items, but, and this was something that I didn't purchase, but uh, I've actually been gifted by various people and it's actually worked out really wonderfully, uh, our bookmarks. So speaking of reading, nowadays it's, I usually have three or four books that I'm reading at the same time. And I, I read on a tablet, but I really read in a different way. So I tend, the books that I really want to read and dive into, I always like them as a physical book. So having bookmarks so I can keep track of where I am uh, in all of these different books come in very handy <laughs> and get used a lot. Um, so I'd say that's a, that's kind of a very um, kind of simple thing. And yeah, that, that, that I tend to repurpose and recycle. So you travel a lot Do you have any tricks on traveling light? Yes, I'm the queen of traveling light. <laughs> Tell me, Mom. Um, I definitely, even when I travel to India, I hardly ever travel with a suitcase that's larger than a, you know, carry-on size suitcase. Um, and it's changed my life, not traveling with a medium or larger suitcase, no matter where I'm going. And I try... This is the this is the process where I do plan a lot, and now I have a, a to do list, travel to do list for domestic and international travel, um, and it's it's become like my bucket list. And I know that I can fit all those items in a carry on size. So if there's really no reason, I have no excuse for traveling with more stuff. <laughs> um, and I try and plan out how many outfits will I need, what can I reuse and repurpose, what can't I. Um, And what are the things that are really essential to my travels? Sometimes there are some like uncompromising things that if I had to decide between a shirt uh, or a pair of pants and carrying my medicines or vitamins, I'm going to choose the, the medicines or vitamins over, over the shirt. And what's your take on clothing? I've gotten 
better. <laughs> I've gotten better with um, spring and winter cleaning, spring, summer and winter cleaning, like actually going through my closet and trying to um, recycle things that I'm no longer using. I live in a smaller, as we do in Cambridge, in smaller units. So my rule has been, I don't always stick to it, but I'm trying to be very dogmatic about this. If I am buying, purchasing any new article of clothing, I have to um, uh, give away something that I have and, or multiple things that I have. So I maintain, I, can, I don't need extra closet space or drawer space, and I don't purchase things that I don't need. It's, um, it's a strategy that I've been trying to hold fast to. Every now and then I don't, I slip up, but, but then there are days when I go and I purge out my, purge out my closet. I would love to get to a point, and I really admire people, and I've had um, a couple of close friends of mine who've, you know, intentionally shifted from large homes into tiny homes and and gotten rid of, you know, 90% of their wardrobe and clothing. And in a way, that sounds so liberating <laughs> to get down to a level where you just have, you know, the seven articles that you're going to be wearing for the week, but I'm not there yet. I'm far from it. <laughs> How do you deal with uh, both physical and digital clutter? Physical clutter, I dislike, except, except when I'm working on an art project or any sort of project. I think the clutter actually, in a way, keeps the process more fluid instead of having things hyper-organized. So it's the one space when I'm okay with leaving things where they are and it, it being a mess, but cleaning up, have, having moments. But otherwise, in my home or any sort of space that I have. I'm a pretty tidy person. I don't like clutter in the house. It, 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 if I see it in somebody else's place, you'll probably see that I'll start cleaning their place. <laughs> and digital clutter? And digital clutter also. I try and keep things organized. I'm actually going through a process of backing up all my photos from the last, I don't know, 12 years. Um, I like to keep even my digital files and email organized in a way that I can quickly understand where things are at a glance without having to think too much about it. And I keep trying to keep, I've tried, I think the hardest thing about the digital clutter has relied on a good system for my kind of digital to-do list and finding different formats for that to-do list. So I've gotten a format that I like now. <laughs> But yeah, I think that translates into keeping my inbox, you know, organized um, where I know what my priorities are um, and responding to things as, as efficiently as I can. Before we go, could you point us to one of your art projects? Yes, absolutely. So one of the art projects is called Pulse and Bloom. Um, and you can actually go to the website pulseandbloom.com. And it's these 20 giant lotuses, which are about 17, 18 feet high, which synchronize to your heartbeat. And the whole idea is to actually get humans to come together and, and see each other's biorhythms as a way of forming connections, deeper connections with each other. And the whole project was around how we could simulate and get a collective group of individuals, almost 40 of them, to synchronize their heartbeats together. And so the, that whole project uh, was really meaningful and exciting because I got to work on that project with other artists and neuroscientists whose research really drove kind of why and how we did this. And being an architect and urban designer, I was really fascinated by 
bringing the whole idea of a synchronization of heartbeats outside of just a one-to-one experience, but kind of more of this urban collective experience. So Pulse and Bloom is both this art experience, but also this urban space. It's sort of this oasis that could be in the desert. We've installed it in all different cities and contexts. And it sort of really has this kind of fascinating kind of energy about it that people will gravitate towards it and linger and spend time. And so even if it's not active or people aren't actively engaged through kind of having their heartbeats through a sensor visualized, it's still kind of this interesting space that can function on its own. So that's one art project that sort of began a series of projects that have really focused on these interactive biofeedback installations. Well, thank you so much. I think we've got to the end. Great. (laughs) We (laughs) We made it. (laughs) I I really enjoyed uh, what you shared with us. Um, I hope you had a good time. Thank you. This is um, really special because I know it's your last but not least podcast in the U.S. Um, for a bit of time, at least before you head back um, to Spain. So we're gonna we're gonna miss you. Thank you. Well, uh, so this was uh, the Getting Simple podcast with uh, Saba Gole. I hope you enjoyed it a lot and I'll see you on the next podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Nono Martinez Alonso, and thank you very much. Before we go, I'd like to remind you that you can find a detailed list of episode notes at gettingsimple.com forward slash and the number of this episode. And that it would really help out if you rate the podcast on iTunes, on the Apple Store. And we also have a Patreon page in case you want to collaborate there. So thank you very much and see ya. Thanks, Saba. Thank you.